Welcome to the third David Butler Lecture on Media and Elections. This lecture series was created in 2011 by a partnership between the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford and the BBC. To honour Sir David Butler and his huge contribution to studying, analysing and explaining elections over more than 60 years. David was author or co-author of every one of the British election studies from 1945 to 2005. David was also the co-author of the classic study, Political Change in Britain, with the American scholar Donald Stokes, published in 1969, and recognised in 2011 by the British Political Studies Association as the best book on British political studies over the past 60 years. Many of us will remember David from his appearance on TV and radio election programmes over many decades. So the aim of these lectures is to do what David did for so many people over so many years, to help us understand the big trends in media, politics and elections in our time. The first two Butler lectures tackled these issues from within the UK political scene. But I'm particularly pleased that tonight we've chosen the 4th of July as the occasion to look at the media and politics beyond these shores. To do that, we're particularly privileged to have Professor Larry Sabato from the University of Virginia with us. He is a former Rhodes Scholar with a doctorate from Oxford University and the author of 24 books and countless essays on politics, including Feeding Frenzy, A More Perfect Constitution and The Year of Obama. He too is at home both in the academy and on the media. In 2013, he won an Emmy Award from the National Academy of Television, Arts and Sciences for the documentary Out of Order, which he produced to highlight what he saw as the dysfunctional US Senate. His slogan is, politics is a good thing, a sentiment that it's fair to say is some way off the public mood in the UK at the moment. If David Butler has any equivalent in the US in terms of expert students of sophology who bridge, bridge the divide between the academy and the media, then Larry Sabato it is. He is the doyen of US electoral studies. His newsletter, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, is required reading for anyone following US elections. And it's hard to count the number of times he's been interviewed during BBC coverage of successive presidential election campaigns. For tonight's lecture, Larry has chosen the tantalising title of What Obama's Elections Have Taught the Media and the Rest of Us. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Larry Sabato. <laughs> Fran, thank you so much, and it's such a, a great honor to be with all of you tonight and addressing this impressive gathering. I can't help but note that you've invited me over on the 4th of July, American Independence Day. I interpret this as a sign that all is forgiven. Uh, and my countrymen enjoy me, enjoy me in saying we're very grateful, although it has been 237 years. I, I would expect as much. The special relationship that exists between the United Kingdom and the United States extends to our politics. And as different as our systems are, we still have much to learn from one another. This lecture is co-sponsored by the BBC and the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And I want to acknowledge and thank our BBC host, Fran Unsworth, and the director of the Reuters Institute, Dr. David Levy. 
Uh, may I also commend you for appropriately naming this lecture after one of the towering figures in the field of cephalogy, Sir David Butler. Since the 1940s, Sir David has enlightened and challenged the elections field with groundbreaking research, including, of course, the Nuffield Election Studies series. He's designed creative innovations such as the famous swingometer, and he has helped the news media and the citizenry in many countries intelligently interpret election results, including the United States. David, it's a great honor to be with you and to celebrate your magnificent career. In democratic societies, the simple act of voting much, must be matched by an understanding of election results. And no one's done more to give powerful meaning to raw numbers than David Butler. I will try to use his career as a guideline tonight. It's often said that we can foresee the small future clearly, but the big future poorly. In the field of elections, that means we can precisely predict the offices to be filled, the dates of the elections, at least in the United States, and the accepted rules of the game. But we never perceive the next big thing, the next trend that will change the face of politics, the next politician who will rewrite the rules. I'm currently finishing up a five-year book project for Bloomsbury Press. My publisher is here with me and wants you to be aware that there are great bookstores everywhere. <laughs> uh, this is a five-year book project entitled The Kennedy Half Century, and we're going to release it this fall as we approach the sad 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy on the 22nd of November. When Jack Kennedy began his run for president, few thought the United States was ready for a Roman Catholic president in a nation that was 75% Protestant, and fewer still believed the 43-year-old had the seasoning to be president. The wise men of the media at the time said a candidate might be able to get over one of these barriers, but not both of them. Yet Kennedy did, barely, with the help of Lyndon Johnson and Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, and perhaps a few civic-minded dead people still on the voting rolls in <laughs> Texas and Illinois. Kennedy's win was astounding and unforeseen even as the election year began. So were many other recent presidential victories. Richard Nixon's improbable comeback from oblivion before returning to oblivion, the unknown Jimmy Carter's Watergate-era win, the triumph of a 69-year-old Hollywood B-movie actor, in 1980, I still recall the headline of the London Times on Election Day 1980. I'm, I'm sure David remembers. That headline talked about the too close to call contest that actually was a massive landslide for Ronald Reagan. However, perhaps never in modern American history has our predictive vision been less acute than for the rise of Barack Obama. He was a mere state legislator four years before his election as president. He'd failed at his only bid for the U.S. House of Representatives in 2000. And oh yes, he was African-American, and all 43 presidents of the United States before him had been white, white men in a nation that had fought a civil war over slavery in the 1860s and another near civil war in the 1960s over race and rights. Still, Obama ran for the United States Senate from Illinois, 2004, and through a combination of skill but also pure luck, his strongest opponent was forced out because of a scandal. The Republicans substituted a far-right, uncompetitive nominee, and Obama skated into the Senate. 
enhanced by his surprise pick as the keynote speaker at the 2004 Democratic National Convention. You may remember this particular excerpt. Obama said, there's no red America. There is no blue America. There is only the United States of America. He thundered this to a national primetime audience, many millions. He referred to the colors, of course, assigned to the Republican and Democratic parties by the news media. Talk about media power. In the United States, the parties didn't even get to choose their own colors. By the way, the Democratic presidential nominee who gave Obama his invaluable national TV debut was John Kerry. I don't think that hurt Senator Kerry when President Obama was looking for a new Secretary of State uh, a few months ago. When Senator Obama began to run for president, just two years after his arrival in the Senate, the response was incredulous, inexperienced, presumptuous, shouted the critics, and black, added others in a whisper. I've admired the way Hillary Clinton has handled the ups and downs of a remarkable career, and I suspect you'll be hearing from her again in some major capacity. <laughs> but she told me personally in February 2008 that if nominated, Obama's race would bring the Democratic ticket crashing down to defeat, and her concerns were widely shared among the party elite. Early on, most political analysts and media pundits believed Clinton could not be defeated in 2008 by anyone, least of all Barack Obama. She'd been the nominee presumptive for two years with clear leads in national polls of Democrats. Now it was a close contest, but by June, the impossible had happened. Barack Obama had won the Democratic nomination for president. But if you go back and review the media coverage at the time, not only did they think that Hillary Clinton would win the nomination, you'll find an enormous degree of pessimism about President Obama's chances for the nomination and the general election. The media polls were showing Obama and Republican nominee John McCain in a tight contest. Speculation in the press was rampant that there would be a hidden anti-black vote on election day. That is, some whites were saying they would cast a ballot for Obama in polls, but they couldn't bring themselves to do so in an actual polling place. This phenomenon had indeed occurred in a couple of elections for state governor in the United States involving African-American candidates in the 1980s. Yet much had changed since the 1980s, and we learned it in 2008. To this day, news media accounts of Obama's victory over McCain claim that the economic collapse in late September, the collapse that initiated the Great Recession, was primarily responsible for boosting Obama into the White House, that he couldn't have won without it. In fact, the 2008 election was effectively over in the summer. The economy was already weak. President Bush was so deeply unpopular that his ratings rivaled Harry Truman's in 1952, in the 20s or low 30s at best. Using our election model that incorporates, among other variables, the incumbent president's poll standing. My predictions website, called the crystal ball, as Fran mentioned, was able to project in July 2008, months before the election, that Barack Obama would receive about 53% of the popular vote. He garnered 52.9% in November. Later in the fall, we projected that Barack Obama would receive 364 electoral votes in the Electoral College. 
he received 365, just one more than our estimate. Obama's popular vote percentage was the best showing for any Democrat since the American Civil War, with the exceptions of the landslides for Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. I'm going to return to 2008 in a moment, but I want to skip forward to the election we witnessed just last year, 2012, in the United States. Uh, the economy wasn't as bad as it has been, and it had been before then. The unemployment rate was still hovering close to 8%, though. And no president since FDR had been reelected with an unemployment rate that high. Americans were pessimistic about the nation's future, with a large majority believing that the country was seriously off on the wrong track. The theme clearly apparent in much of the media throughout 2012, and you could go back and read it for, your, for yourselves, was either that Obama might be doomed or that at best, in the end, the election would be a squeaker, would be extremely close. Not only was Barack Obama not doomed, he won by five million votes, four full percentage points, and a large electoral college tally that saw only two states switch from 2008, Indiana and North Carolina. We spent $7 billion on the election to switch two states, seven billion. Of course, we spend that much on Halloween in the United States. <laughs> In the age of Twitter and blogs and personnel cutbacks and a dozen deadlines every day, every single thing that happens publicly gets reported in some detail. But we drown in the details. It's almost as though everything is the single most important thing that has ever happened until it's replaced by the newest most important thing. What's lost in media coverage is fundamentals boring constants that David Butler stressed throughout his entire career that tell us far more than the latest gaffe committed by a candidate ever could. Let me cite just a few examples. In U.S. history, this is a great constant, since popular elections began in 1824, presidents who sought another term have been about twice as likely to win that term as to lose it. Automatic advantage President Obama. Since 1900, five incumbent presidents have been denied a second term. William Howard Taft, I'm sure he's well known, Herbert Hoover, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and Bush Sr. In each case, the incumbent faced a serious challenge for renomination within his own party. You could also add Truman in 1952 and Lyndon Johnson in 1968, both of whom decided not to run again, in large part because of major primary opponents within the Democratic Party. Every re-elected president was unopposed for renomination or had very minor opposition. Another advantage for President Obama, fundamental advantage for President Obama. Research in my field has confirmed what analysts have always suspected. There is increased difficulty for a party to hold the White House with the addition of every four-year term that it's in the White House. Grievances, scandals, missteps are cumulative. They add up, they make it more difficult to win again. The obverse of this axiom is also true. It's much easier to hold the White House when your party has been in control for just a short period of time. 
From the start of the 20th century until today, parties have almost always retained control of the White House for a second consecutive four-year term. The sole exception, of course, was Jimmy Carter uh, in, for the Democrats in 1980. Uh, Carter was the unluckiest president since Herbert Hoover. A horrible economy in the second half of his term, the humiliating Iranian hostage crisis, the Ted Kennedy challenge for renomination. But except for Jimmy, uh, the incumbent presidents get reelected if the party is new in the White House. In 2012, President Obama and the Democrats had held the White House for just four years. The memories of President Bush were very fresh. The Iraq War, Hurricane Katrina, the economic collapse, all of these things were in the public's mind. Like his predecessors, Obama could point to Bush, the incumbent president, whose poll ratings were in the cellar, and argue, I haven't had enough time for my policies to work. And besides, why would we ever want to go back to George W. Bush? Fundamental advantage, President Obama. You see how the fundamental constants are adding up in his favor. While the press focused almost obsessively on the unemployment rate, political scientists have long known that another economic measure, the change in GDP, gross domestic product, is a much better indicator of how the public will react politically. People don't know the precise numbers, of course, but they sense whether the economy is improving or not. In the first three quarters of 2012, the United States GDP increased by 3.2% historically just enough for an incumbent president to win. Another fundamental advantage for President Obama. Notice that I have yet to mention the challenger's name. That's because traditionally, voters exercise retrospective judgment in choosing a president. If the incumbent passes basic tests on the economy, on foreign policy, for example, no unpopular wars, on scandal, there are no scandals directly connected to a president, then a president's almost assured of re-election. Only when an incumbent fails on at least one of these measures is the challenger seriously considered for the White House. Now, an unacceptable challenger, say far-right Barry Goldwater back in 1964, or far-left George McGovern in 1972, sends people scurrying back to the incumbent whatever their problems or doubts. Well, Mitt Romney was no Barry Goldwater. Romney was far more moderate than even he could admit. He had, to, he had to pretend to be very conservative in order to get nominated by today's very conservative Republican primary electorate. Romney could perform splendidly in a presidential debate as he did in early October when he defeated President Obama by a mile in the first presidential debate, but there was no lasting effect. Romney's many gaffes wiped out whatever gains he might have made in that debate, writing off 47% of the U.S. public as supposedly too dependent on government largesse to consider voting for a self-reliant Republican, or earlier, offending a very close ally of the United States with some bizarre comments about the Olympics. I don't know if anyone here remembers anything like that. The, I, the details escape me. Uh, but gaffes had little or nothing to do with the election results. The evidence is strong that a top-tier Republican nominee, such as former Florida Governor Jeb Bush or New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who may run in 2016, 
they would have fared little better than Romney, which surprises people. Arguably, all of Romney's actual opponents for the Republican nomination, the ones who actually ran in the primaries, like former Speaker Newt Gingrich, would have lost by wider margins than Romney did. Why is this so? Well, the fundamentals I just outlined are part of it. And as I've noted, those fundamentals receive very little attention from a media obsessed with each day's insignificant events. Overall, though, I think two massive political and social elements, developments, explain what is happening in American politics. And it's important for everybody to focus on these two fundamentals. First, America is polarized into two warring party camps in a way that's actually unusual in recent decades. We haven't been this far apart in a long time. Our current parties are coalitions of groups that hasn't changed, but ideologically, the American political parties have been purified on both sides. From Franklin Roosevelt until Bill Clinton, both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party contained a fair number of ideological apostates. Liberal Northern Republicans and conservative Southern Democrats were relatively common. This encouraged bipartisanship in both houses of Congress and in many state legislatures. Big legislation, major new programs required backing from both sides to pass, unlike, for example, Obamacare, which was passed on the votes almost entirely of Democrats. For example, back in the 1960s, civil rights bills and the establishment of health care for the elderly, called Medicare, received many votes from both parties. Remarkably, because of the prevalence of conservative Southern Democrats in those days, a larger proportion of Republicans than Democrats in Congress backed civil rights. That always shocks people. The Democratic Party was the party opposed to civil rights. Republicans were in favor. Today, virtually without exception, Democrats in Congress are liberal. Republicans in Congress are conservative. One recent study, amazingly, has shown that the most conservative Democrat currently serving in Congress is more liberal than the most liberal Republican in Congress. It's, again, two different worlds. Bipartisanship may not be dead, but it's on life support. In ideological terms, Republicans are from Mars and Democrats are from Venus. I'm sure you have nothing like this in the United Kingdom. Voters have realigned as well. They sorted themselves out by ideology into the Liberal Party and the Conservative Party. They agree on very little, at least with respect to controversial social and economic policies. Crossover voting, where people will vote for the other party, has been reduced too. And Americans have even sorted themselves out ideologically, this is incredible, sorted themselves out ideologically in their choice of home, community, and state. Political birds of a feather are now flocking together in terms of where they live. If they have economic mobility, Americans live where they're most comfortable and where they share the values of their neighbors. For instance, most U.S. states have become more deeply Republican red or more deeply Democratic blue. A pair of presidential contests illustrate my point. Back in 1976, Democrat Jimmy Carter defeated Republican Gerald Ford by a very modest majority. 
but the election was competitive throughout most of the country. 20 of the 50 states, 20 states, were decided by less than 5% of the vote. In 2012, Barack Obama also defeated Mitt Romney by a modest majority, but only four states, not 20, four states were decided by less than 5% of the votes. A majority of the states, 27 of the 50 states, went for Obama or Romney by massive landslides of 15% or more. It's just really remarkable in so many ways. So much for there being no red America and no blue America, as Obama once declared. There's a redder America and a bluer America. That's what I see when I look at the map. Now, what about those independents, the media, talk about endlessly, who don't identify with either party? If you read the American press and some of the polls they take, you'd think that a quarter to a third or more of the American voters fall into this independent category. That's, according to the media, an enormous swing group that can go either way and picks all the winners of all the elections. It makes for great, exciting headlines, and it is totally phony, totally phony. A tall stack of research shows that true independents are tiny in number, at most five to eight percent of the electorate, and many of them are disengaged and don't vote at all. The hidden partisans, people who say they're independent because it has social cachet or helps them avoid family or workplace arguments, actually have a very clear partisanship once their voting choices are examined, and they vote for one party at least as often as the fully declared partisans. Thus, much of the media drama about the undecided vote is invented, invented. Another trend complements polarization. It's even more powerful than polarization. It's the changing composition of the American electorate, something that you're seeing in Britain as well. Demography is destiny, increasingly so, and it's helping the Democrats and terrifying the Republicans, and perhaps, underlined perhaps 10 times, spurring the Republican Party to make long overdue shifts. Bluntly put, much of the voting in America today is directly related to race and gender. Democrats now regularly win the votes of about 80% of all minority voters, African Americans, Hispanics, Asian Americans, other minority groups, 80%. Republicans, on the other hand, win up to 60% of the votes of whites. That white support was enough for the Republican nominee for president to win three landslides in the 1980s. Mitt Romney, people don't believe this, but it's true. Mitt Romney ran as strongly as Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. among whites. Reagan and Bush won landslides. Romney got 47% of the vote. That's because in the 1980s, whites were more than 85% of the national electorate. In 2012, whites were just 72% of those who voted for president. Meanwhile, the muscle of minorities is increasing by about 2% of the total vote every four years in the presidential cycle. I expect minorities to be close to 30% of the national vote for the next presidential election in 2016. By around 2044, 
all minorities taken together will be a majority of the U.S. population. And 2044 is just around the corner. I look forward to celebrating it with David. <laughs> Even though it's going to take a while longer for minority groups to account for a majority of the actual electorate, the trend is unmistakable and irreversible. Either Republicans begin to win considerably more than their current 20% share of the minority vote, 20%, or they're going to be a permanent minority party. They're going to win the White House only when Democrats forfeit it temporarily because of a bad recession, an unpopular war, or a serious scandal. Instead of a two-party system, the United States could be developing a party-and-a-half system. Now, you might ask, couldn't Republicans just increase their share of the white vote? Wouldn't that work? It's highly unlikely. First, women are a majority of the white vote and a majority of the overall vote in every state. Nationally, they're about 53% of the, of the total. Since 1980, without fail, they voted considerably more Democratic for president than have men, regardless of which party won the White House. This so-called gender gap is generated by many factors, primarily economics, but also women's views on war and peace, abortion and contraception, and other social issues. The Republican Party shows no sign of shifting positions near enough to change the gender equation, which is another problem for them. Second, the young, those between the ages of 18 and 30, have begun to identify strongly with the Democratic Party, mainly because of the party's positions on gay rights, on abortion, on climate change, and other similar topics. Obama won between 60% and 66% of the young in his two elections. Romney won narrowly only among white youth, and again, much smaller than his average overall with whites. But the white proportion of the youth vote is actually diminishing at a greater rate than the overall white population is dropping in the United States. Adding insult to injury for the Republicans, the available research suggests that once someone has voted for the same party in three consecutive elections, they're likely to retain that partisan preference for the rest of their lives. Republicans appear unwilling so far to jettison their conservative social policies, which will be essential if the Republicans are to win more of the youth vote. It's easy to see why they're hesitant to change those social policies. Mitt Romney, just like George Bush, just like John McCain, captured nearly 80% of the white Christian evangelical vote. The very people who would abandon the Republican Party if it suddenly became pro-choice on abortion or supportive of gay marriage. Republicans are also strongest among those 65 years of age and older. Generational replacement, though, and I love that euphemism, generational replacement reduces the value of an edge among older people with each passing year, for a reason I won't discuss. The future of politics, like everything else, really does belong to the young. Now, this can change if and when the economy tanks under a Democratic president. You never know. And Republicans can continue to win midterm elections as they did in 2010, and I suspect they may well do again in 2014. Why? Because voter turnout falls so precipitously, up to a third in midterm elections, and therefore the voters who turn out 
in midterm elections are older, they are white. In other words, the Republican Party's bastion. But America is a presidentially oriented country. There's no substitute for holding the White House. It hasn't been just Republicans who've missed the magnitude of these trends, I should stress. The news media have been wide of the mark in some cases as well. I think specifically of the Gallup polling group, which in 2012 had their worst year since 1948 when they elected President Thomas E. Dewey. Some pollsters got it right. The Reuters tracking poll was very close to the mark. But Gallup and almost all Republican pollsters got the election terribly wrong. When Gallup showed Romney leading Obama in mid-October by as much as 6%, the pollster came close to declaring the election over, noting that no one who was so far ahead at that point in an election campaign had ever lost the White House. Well, the inadequacies of old-style polling in the age of cell phones explains part of Gallup's miscall. But many in the media and the polling industry have been slow to grasp the fact that old models of the American electorate are changing quickly. One model that news organizations grasp is their own business model. And unfortunately, many of the changes uh, in that model have reduced serious coverage and magnified the very worst in journalism. Severe cuts in resources and staffing have left journalists overworked and unable to devote attention to matters beyond the daily headlines. Investigative reporting has been slashed and it shows. Reporters are too busy blogging and tweeting the day away to spend weeks piecing together the underlying story. And only a very small number of news organizations can afford the luxury of in-depth reporting. As the Pew Center has demonstrated, television news has shifted heavily to opinion and away from fact-based journalism and investigation. Opinion is very cheap to produce on television. After all, everybody's got an opinion. And there's an endless supply of party hacks, whatever the country. Much of that discussion, uninformed chatter, and obnoxious bloviating from partisan perspectives. Am I being too frank? <laughs> the only useful pundit is analytical. The only useful pundit is research-oriented. The only useful pundit is fact-based. In other words, someone who has as his model Sir David Butler. David may even recall a popular American TV detective series called Dragnet, where Sergeant Friday, one of the stars, trying to ascertain the truth so he could share it with others, would rebuke a witness straying into opinion and away from objective observations with the phrase, just the facts, ma'am. That's what we need from the news media. That's what we need from pollsters at election time. That's what the voters should expect and demand from all of us who have a role in the elections process. Perhaps we'll get more facts and less opinion the next time around. Hope springs eternal. Thank you all very much.